Hello there, it's Christopher Brick, and welcome once more to Intervals, Season 2, another public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. And today, dear listeners, we are so pleased to welcome to the show Andrew Marion, a PhD candidate at the University of Mississippi, whose work on the history of displaced persons in the mid-20th century traces how it was that the Roosevelt administration's wartime vision or a global New Deal predicated on universal human rights collided with an increasingly conservative vision for social and political arrangements in the late 1940s and early 1950s. It's a tremendous piece of work that Andrew's contributed to season two. It's also a wonderful listen as well, and we're really quite honored to share it with you all of the Intervals audience. Enjoy. Hello, listeners. My name is Andrew Marion, and I'm a PhD candidate in the History Department at the University of Mississippi. In this lecture, I'll be discussing American efforts to resettle European displaced persons following World War II. At times during this lecture, I will shorten displaced persons to DP, an acronym that the U.S., rest of the world, and the displaced used at the time and continue to use. I will start the lecture by setting the scene in the summer of 1945, as war in Europe ended and the DP crisis began emerging. I will then move into discussing what occurred in the intervening years that led to the passage of the Displaced Persons Act in June 1948. Following a brief analysis of the legislation, I will use examples from multiple states and regions to explain the implementation of resettlement, looking specifically at American DP sponsors' motivations and methods and the experiences of the displaced. That will lead me into a short discussion of how the federal government and others assessed the program at its conclusion and how DP resettlement represented an important contingent step towards subsequent immigration policy reforms. Lastly, I will end the lecture with a few words on how the story of DP resettlement in the late 1940s and early 1950s provides lessons that are especially relevant and timely concerning current events in Ukraine. On August 24, 1945, Earl G. Harrison, the dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School and former Commissioner of Immigration and Naturalization, from 1942 to 1944, submitted a report to President Harry S. Truman at the White House that detailed the emerging displaced persons crisis in Europe. Harrison had spent the previous month in Europe surveying DP camps at the request and direction of the Truman administration, and his report detailed harrowing stories of the displaced living in destitute, unsanitary, and dangerous camps with little support or oversight. The displaced persons in these camps represented a religiously, ethnically, and politically diverse group of individuals from Eastern Europe and Baltic nations, many having survived the Holocaust and forced relocation, and others having voluntarily traveled to Germany for employment or other reasons during the war. Truman responded emotionally to Harrison's report and vowed to commit the U.S. government to providing aid and relief to the displaced. More broadly, 
Truman understood that if the U.S. failed to address this crisis, it risked both the lives of the displaced and America's political and moral standing in the world. Harrison's visit to the White House coincided with the Truman administration's preparations for a pivotal message to Congress about reconversion to a peacetime economy. Truman and other Americans across the political spectrum feared that a failed reconversion could lead to some of the domestic tensions and economic problems that had followed the First World War. Strike waves had already begun and would continue spreading. Returning veterans faced considerable adjustment challenges. Laborers in war industries found themselves displaced from their jobs. And perceived threats of communism made Americans increasingly paranoid. Truman hoped to lead the world through the growing DP crisis and the U.S. through the conflicts of reconversion by following his predecessor's blueprint for using state power to support American businesses and secure individual economic rights. Truman's 21-point message to Congress, delivered on September 6, 1945, repeated a key section of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union Address that articulated a second Bill of Rights. Roosevelt's vision included the right to economic security, enumerating rights to a job, education, medical care, and a home for Americans and all others everywhere in the world. Prior to his death in April 1945, Roosevelt had developed this ambitious economic expansion of rights-based liberalism at home and abroad through planning for the post-war international order. These ideas helped form the basis for emerging post-war concepts of human rights and humanitarianism that the recently formed United Nations would adopt in 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The DP crisis and domestic reconversion tested America's commitment to these nascent virtues, and Truman struggled to enact Roosevelt's plans and realize his own vision for American politics and humanitarianism. Truman confronted a growing modern conservative movement within the Republican Party that wished to dismantle the New Deal, an intransigent southern cage of segregationists within his own party, a restless labor movement, and a faction on the left that would eventually coalesce around the third-party candidacy of Henry Wallace in 1948. Both Truman's initial plans for DP resettlement and economic reconversion failed because of pushback from Congress and others who sought their own agendas, despite a growing Cold War consensus around the need to aid the displaced. Truman issued a directive in December 1945 for Congress to pass DP resettlement legislation. But it took Congress until June 1948 to pass the Displaced Persons Act, which was later amended in 1950. Over the course of four years, from 1948 to 1952, approximately 395,000 displaced persons resettled in the United States as part of this humanitarian program. 
it is important to note that this resettlement program was not inevitable. Strong anti-immigrant and anti-refugee factions within both parties, and in both the House and Senate, seriously curtailed this legislation to make it amenable to existing restrictive immigration quotas. The legislation also gave individual Americans power to use the program to meet their own economic, political, and social goals. Serious lobbying began for the passage of a displaced persons resettlement bill, roughly a year following Truman's December 1945 directive to Congress. Earl Harrison helped organize the Citizens Committee on Displaced Persons, the CCDP, which lobbied Congress for passage of the DP Act and educated the public about the nation's humanitarian obligations to the displaced. The CCDP included members from across the political spectrum and representing overlapping interests and religious affiliations. Some of the notable members included Eleanor Roosevelt, Herbert Lehman, William J. Donovan, Marshall Field, David Dubinsky, Jacob Potofsky, A. Philip Randolph, and Walter White. In their work to appeal to the widest swath of Americans possible and build a consensus around the need for resettlement legislation, the CCDP had to carefully find a middle ground that would appease both foreign policy isolationists and immigration restrictionists in Congress. After initial attempts to lobby Republicans to sponsor the bill, the committee settled on an Illinois Democrat, William G. Stratton, who lacked the seniority and political clout to successfully shepherd the bill through Congress. This stalled the passage of the bill until the CCDP could enact their broader public relations and media campaign. The CCDP appeals to the public through direct outreach to civic, labor, business, and religious groups, as well as the use of popular media, such as scripted radio programs and films, emphasize the humanitarian and religious duties that Americans had to the displaced. Radio programs on the plight of the displaced include some of the era's most popular stars, including Henry Fonda, Paul Mooney, and Eileen McMahon. And the CCDP secured a statement in support of DP resettlement from the recently elected Screen Actors Guild president, Ronald Reagan. Outreach to professional civic, labor, and business groups highlighted both humanitarian duty and the perceived economic benefits of resettling DPs. The CCDP earned approval and endorsement from the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, Chamber of Commerce, and the American Legion. Those last two groups, the Chamber of Commerce and American Legion, had to be assured that DPs would not become public charges and that the legislation would not dismantle existing immigration quotas. In their outreach to both of those groups, the CCDP emphasized the perceived political characteristics of DPs, arguing they would be helpful allies in the fight against communism. The passage of the DP Act in June 1948 
represented a significant step forward for DPs in Europe and the CCDP. But the provisions of the bill gave individual Americans coercive power over the displaced and discriminated against Jewish and Catholic DPs. Truman signed the bill because of the urgent need to resettle the last million DPs who still remained in the camps by the summer of 1948. But he, alongside the CCDP and religious groups, urged Congress to begin drafting improvements to the bill. Critics of the bill pointed to the requirement that 30% of all the DPs resettled to the U.S. as part of the program had to be agricultural workers, arguing this disproportionately benefited Protestant DPs because Jewish and Catholic DPs were more likely to have lived and worked in urban areas prior to their displacement. Similarly, dateline requirements by which DPs had to have arrived in Germany may have discriminated against Jews and Catholics. Moreover, the legislation required that each resettled DP have an American sponsor who would provide housing and employment. This meant that prospective American sponsors could decide which DPs were most suitable for resettlement. Thus, a DP's likelihood for resettlement could be directly tied to sponsors' perceptions of their labor potential or other political, social, or personal identity factors. Able-bodied single men had more resettlement opportunities than others, especially compared to the elderly, the disabled, single women, or single parents with children. Congress also developed a visa mortgaging scheme to ensure that resettlement did not totally disrupt existing immigration quotas. The legislation stipulated that once 50% of the quota for a certain group had been reached for a given year through DP visas, the government would then begin using visas for the subsequent year, and so on. The resulting effect meant some quotas would be mortgaged years, if not decades, into the future to allow for resettlement, thus significantly decreasing available immigration visas for those groups until legislation changed or eliminated the quotas. The DP Act also created a federal commission, the Displaced Persons Commission, the DPC, to coordinate and implement resettlement. Truman appointed three commissioners to lead the agency, one Protestant, one Catholic, and one Jew all with extensive experience in the administrative state, working in a number of areas. Those commissioners set up the DPC's operations in Europe and worked alongside the private, religious, and voluntary agencies that had the resources, staff, and funds to facilitate the application, assurance, and resettlement process. The public-private partnerships that implemented DP resettlement were part of a larger pattern that had been central to both the New Deal and the wartime economy, and these partnerships would be a major feature of post-war economic development as well. Prior to the passage of the bill, the religious and voluntary agencies that would assist with resettlement 
began making preparations and continuing to build a public relations campaign to educate the American people about resettlement. Similar to the CCDP, this work included radio shows, films, op-eds, and mailers. The materials focused on the charitable, humanitarian, or religious duties of Americans to take in a family of DPs. But they also argued that DPs would be productive workers and free enterprising citizens. These organizations also conducted outreach to individual states and employers, with one example being the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee, which sent letters all throughout the U.S., that called Ukrainian DPs, quote, good, honest, law-abiding, anti-communist, and God-fearing workers, who were good farmers as well as industrial workers, willing to start a new life in our glorious United States. As more and more Americans learned about DP resettlement, they began filling out resettlement applications with both the DPC and other agencies. Their motivations for resettlement varied, but many, if not most, prospective sponsors believed DPs could provide them with much-needed labor on their farms or in their businesses. To describe this in more detail, I'm going to briefly explain how sponsors in three different states, Mississippi, California, and Minnesota, viewed resettlement and treated DPs. In Mississippi, DP sponsors intended to resettle DPs to replace black labor and provide a safeguard against potential federal civil rights legislation. Mississippi represents, in some ways, a unique case study because a significant percentage of DP resettlement in the state was the result of one man's work, Colonel Albert T. Callicott, who both resettled DPs on his family's property in Senatobia, Mississippi, and worked as a broker for other Mississippians seeking DP labor. Calicott's position with the military gave him access to DP camps in Europe, and he visited the camps to interview and select DPs for Mississippi sponsors. As part of this work, he promoted DP resettlement to his planter peers as a way to replace black labor and create a white labor force that would guard against any potential federal civil rights legislation that could disrupt white political power or threaten long-standing exploitative agricultural arrangements like sharecropping and tenancy. Some of the first DPs to arrive in Mississippi resettled with the Calicott family, and the Calicots intended for these DPs to live and work on their property for the long term. Colonel Calicott forced the DPs he resettled to sign tenancy contracts that gave the Calicots almost total control of those DP families' lives and earnings, thus attempting to bind them to the Calicots for as long as possible. These contracts pushed a significant percentage of farm costs onto the DPs, forced them to work in the off-season months without pay, and garnished a percentage of any wages they earned off the Calicott property. DPs living in Mississippi, on both the Calicott farm and throughout the state, 
experienced exploitation and harsh conditions as soon as they arrived, and reports of poor treatment of DPs quickly spread throughout the nation and the world. The first group of DPs to arrive in Mississippi in November 1948 resettled on the Calicot property in Senatobia, where they immediately experienced mistreatment and exploitation. The Calicots did not provide adequate housing or livestock, and the DP families arrived following the harvest. This meant they did not earn wages during their first few months in America, pushing them into debt to the plantation store. Newspaper reports about this mistreatment on the Calicot property prompted independent investigations into the exploitation of DPs on the Calicot farm and the much larger Delta and Pine Land Company, for which Calicot had served as a broker. Local white community leaders successfully blocked these investigations, especially after they accused the complainants and the investigators of being outside agitators or communists, a common theme among white Southerners defending themselves. Despite persistent concerns about the exploitation of DPs in Mississippi, and more broadly the rural South, the Federal DP Commission deferred to state leaders and did not meaningfully intervene on behalf of the DP's welfare. DPs in Mississippi, living in these harsh, unsanitary housing and working for little or no pay, pleaded with religious groups and voluntary agencies to provide them relief and deliverance with some comparing their situation to slavery. One DP employed by Delta and Pine Land, Eisen Selms, claimed his sponsor had tried to push his family, quote, into debt and slavery. And he asked, Where is justice? Or have we been punished by God? The complaints from DPs sponsored by Delta and Pine Land were so frequent and vivid that it prompted the president of the Wisconsin Latvian Association, Lauma Kazak, to travel to Delta and Pine Land's headquarters to pay off DP debts and transport them to new sponsors in Wisconsin. Colonel Calicott's and other Mississippi sponsors' plans to use DP laborers to build a predominantly white labor force that would be impervious to potential civil rights legislation failed because DPs left the South. Despite Calicott's failure to achieve his long-term goals, he and other Mississippi sponsors had successfully leveraged the DP resettlement program to enhance and reshape their labor force in the short term. Shifting westward to Southern California, we see how citrus growers associations experimented with resettling large numbers of single DP men in the hopes of ending or lessening the need for Mexican migrant workers, thus mitigating potential U.S. federal government or Mexican government oversight, limiting unionization in the fields or labor camps, and creating a white labor force to fuel Sunbelt expansion. The California State Advisory Committee on the Resettlement of Displaced Persons, appointed by Governor Earl Warren, helped coordinate this work with the help and guidance of religious voluntary agencies like the National Lutheran Council, 
and state employment agencies. Citrus growers in the Imperial Valley, similar to growers in other heavily agricultural areas of Southern California, initially experimented with resettling single DP men to test whether or not they could, quote, stand the heat of Imperial Valley, adjust to the irregular working hours required for certain fields, and like it to the extent that they would be willing to write back to their friends and relatives. Citrus growers in the Imperial Valley hoped they could keep 350 DPs busy the year round, but they could not possibly experiment with less than 500 men at the peak. They hoped these experiments would work well enough that, quote, an order of approximately 1,500 families could be established in the area as a permanent community. At the time, approximately 8,000 Mexican nationals lived and worked under contract in Southern California, 2,000 working in citrus picking navel oranges, with the largest number working in the Imperial Valley. While some of these initial plans succeeded, and the first large groups of single DP men adjusted relatively well, the long-term plans failed because citrus growers could not resettle enough DPs to really make a difference. The Federal DP Commission never established a West Coast port of entry because of cost and logistical concerns, despite multiple requests from Governor Warren. If these DP resettlement experiments had succeeded, citrus growers in the Imperial Valley could have eliminated or decreased their need for Mexican migrant workers and could have easily created a controllable, non-unionized white workforce to meet local needs and anticipate Sunbelt expansion. Shifting our focus once again, this time to Minnesota, we have an example of how some viewed resettlement as a way to strengthen immigrant identity and culture in cities. In Minnesota, a significant percentage of the resettlements in the state occurred because of the work of Dr. Alexander Gronofsky and Irene Gronofsky, who filed assurances for resettlements through the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee. Alexander Gronofsky had immigrated from Ukraine to the United States in 1913 and worked as a professor at the University of Minnesota. The Gronofskys devoted considerable attention to bringing as many Ukrainian DPs to Minnesota and the Twin Cities area as possible. The University of Minnesota supported Alexander Gronofsky through allowing him to travel to Europe to meet with and interview Ukrainian DPs, after which Alexander Gronofsky would prepare short bio packets for prospective sponsors. The Gronofskys tried, and ultimately failed, to convince canning companies in Minnesota to resettle large numbers of DP families, similar to California citrus growers' plans. But the Gronofskys did successfully appeal to certain businesses and industries in the Twin Cities area to sponsor and employ DPs. While Calicot and Mississippi, or the citrus growers in California, viewed resettlement almost purely as labor recruitment, the Gronofskys also cared very deeply about Ukrainian DPs contributing their customs and culture to the Ukrainian community in the Twin Cities. 
planning art shows and other events to highlight the talents of these Ukrainian DPs. However, in order to find sponsors, the Granovskys did have to meet potential sponsors' labor and economic needs, which arguably put at least some of these Ukrainian DPs in exploitative environments. As these examples from Mississippi, California, and Minnesota demonstrate, Americans exploited DPs to meet their own personal, economic, and political needs. But DPs also resisted their exploitation, especially those resettled in rural areas, through leaving their sponsors quickly and moving to urban areas. DPs could travel to cities, especially in the Northeast and Midwest, where they could live among fellow immigrants and more easily practice their customs and religion. American sponsors became increasingly concerned as early as 1949 about DPs leaving them too quickly, so much so that many Americans canceled their applications for resettlement out of fears they would not be able to recoup any expenses they incurred as part of the process. These sponsors and the voluntary agencies that partnered with the Federal DP Commission put pressure on Congress to protect sponsors and impose penalties on DPs who left their sponsors too quickly. These efforts culminated in the creation of the Good Faith Oath as part of the DP Act of 1950. With this bill, Congress mostly corrected some of the discrimination inherent in the 1948 Act, but the addition of the Good Faith Oath gave American sponsors even more coercive power over the displaced. This loyalty oath, while practically unenforceable, threatened DPs with deportation if they did not honor poorly defined obligations to their sponsors. The Federal DP Commission administered this oath at multiple stages of the resettlement process in Europe, translating the oath into all applicable languages and consistently reminding the DPs of their oaths. Voluntary agencies also began producing detailed orientation packets and guides for DPs that dissuaded them from challenging their employer's authority and educated them about a certain vision of American life that suggested a post-war, suburban, middle-class, free-enterprising consensus that simply did not exist in many of the areas where DPs would resettle. One particular case, in Cleveland, Ohio, demonstrated the rhetorical power of the Good Faith Oath and these orientation materials. In November 1951, pressed steel products in Cleveland fired 28 out of their 130 laborers, quote, on the grounds that no work was available for them. During the previous weeks, the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers had begun efforts to organize the 130 laborers at pressed steel products. 35 of those 130 laborers were DPs, most of whom had been hired in the previous few months, and those DPs refused to join the union. When the union went on strike following the firings, the DPs, according to a union representative, quote, crossed the picket lines of the American citizens every day. 
The strike-breaking DPs cited the good faith oath as their reason for not joining the union or striking. The union contacted the Federal DP Commission, arguing that these DPs were displacing American workers, which would have violated the DP Acts. But federal and state officials rebuffed those concerns. In this case, the good faith oath worked as it was intended. The design of the DP legislation, both the sponsorship requirement and the good faith oath, elevated the economic benefits for sponsors and allowed them to exploit DPs and restrict their individual economic rights. When the resettlement program came to a close in 1952, approximately 395,000 displaced persons had arrived in the U.S. as part of the program, signifying an enormous humanitarian achievement for the nation. The Federal DP Commission created a final report that outlined their successes and failures and they made recommendations for future refugee admissions programs and immigration policy. The report harshly assessed the existing immigration quotas that DP resettlement had to work within, and they called for serious reconsiderations of the viability of those quotas. DP resettlement demonstrated how those quotas were simply incongruent with U.S. Cold War policy and the Truman Doctrine's pledge to assist free people resisting communism and authoritarianism around the world. DP resettlement energized politicians and activists who supported a liberalization of immigration policy, signifying DP resettlement as a vital, contingent moment for understanding change over time in immigration policy and a step toward the passage of the Hart Seller Immigration Act of 1965. Even with these humanitarian successes and movement toward immigration liberalization, scholars must understand that resettlement succeeded because the legislation and implementation of resettlement appealed to Americans' economic, political, and social interests. Many American sponsors exploited the displaced to such an egregious degree that the displaced had to find additional relief and refuge from their first American sponsors. Many of the sponsors failed to achieve their short-term and long-term goals with resettlement because DPs resisted through abandoning their sponsors or contacting those who could help them. As I record this lecture in May 2022, Russian aggression in Ukraine has and continues to create a burgeoning humanitarian refugee crisis in the region. The Biden administration and international community have promised to provide aid and relief, but this crisis will almost certainly worsen. Americans should be prepared to resettle large numbers of Ukrainian refugees in their cities and communities and we must look to the lessons of DP resettlement in the late 1940s and early 1950s. The U.S. can meet their humanitarian duty to these refugees through resettlement, but I would argue that DP resettlement shows us that refuge and resettlement are not enough. 
the federal government, individual states, religious groups, voluntary agencies, and others have the obligations and capacities to provide opportunities for any refugees resettled in the U.S. These refugees deserve protection from exploitation and respect for their own individual economic rights. The United States must guarantee and protect human rights and individual economic rights everywhere in the world. Thank you. Well, that sure left me with lots to think about, and I know I'm not the only one. And so, as is the custom around this place next time, Andrew's here answering our questions and yours. Please join us.